Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Dr. Randy Cron. Uh, he's the director of pediatric rheumatology at UAB Hospital. Um, he's also a clinical scientist. He studies uh, macrophage activation syndrome, and uh, he received his MD from UCLA and completed a pediatric residency at Stanford and a pediatric rheumatology fellowship at University of Washington. So um, we're going to talk about his work. As uh, it sounds like being a physician scientist. So, Dr. Cron, Randy, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, would you call yourself a physician scientist? Is that what you you are? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I uh, even before I got my MD, I got uh, my PhD in immunology at the University of Chicago, and um, and then I had to decide whether to go back to med school at that point because I really liked the science, but uh, did, and I'm glad I did because, um, like you said, physician scientists, I think it it's you know having the MD and seeing patients uh, specifically for what I'm doing now really drove uh, my research career. Yeah, you know. It, I'm sure it's it's like the old saying the uh, the people in the field you know the doctors the clinicians are thinking the researchers have no idea what's really going on and the researchers are saying well you know this is what the science is saying the doctors don't know and so if you're both I'm sure you get a much more complete perspective on what actually works and and you know how everything uh, functions so yeah I think it helps for sure to yeah. come at it from both angles so um, a really basic question what is rheumatology by the way. Uh, I've heard of rheumatoid arthritis, but I don't know what a rheumatologist does. Yeah, so uh, rheumatic diseases in general are um, uh, diseases that the immune system kind of gone wrong. Uh, a lot of the times they're what we call autoimmune, where your immune system, which is there and it's been developed to fight off uh, infections like the SARS virus, for example, um, uh, somehow ends up attacking its own tissue. Uh, and uh, it's, a, it's a complicated system, and so there are a lot of checks and balances built into it, but at some point, uh, it can go wrong to the point where your immune system recognizes your own tissues as foreign and, uh, and causes, for example, arthritis. Um, so that's, I guess, a simplistic way of doing it, but there are a lot of diseases that kind of fall under the, the rheumatologist's uh, auspices, but uh, arthritis being number one, both for pediatric patients and for adult rheumatologists. Okay. So um, is there any change, I don't know, in the past few years and the types of patients that you're seeing, you know, irrespective of, you know, the, the coronavirus right now, or, or maybe that's important. Is that, is that dramatically changing the type of people you're seeing or, you know, the people that have the comorbidities that you typically work with, are they being affected by it or, or not really? Yeah. I mean, the coronavirus is this COVID-19 has changed a lot, obviously. Um, and I just saw a couple of patients in clinic, but that's pretty uncommon. Most of what we're doing now is telehealth. Those just happen to be new patients and it's hard to do a joint exam uh, by telehealth, for example. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's changed a, a lot of, of what we're doing. And, and in terms of our patients, I mean, the data will tell with time, but so far it looks like 
um, our patients, those who have autoimmune diseases, for example, don't seem to be at increased risk of getting um, a bad version of the coronavirus infection. So it, it seems like, Good. you know, 20% of people do pretty poorly if they get the virus, but it doesn't seem to be overrepresented amongst our patients. Oh, good. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I didn't even know that, uh, I guess, you know, it's pediatric rheumatology, so I didn't know that, uh, you know, teens and kids uh, tend to have these disorders. I mean, what, like, what are the most prevalent disorders that you work with? Maybe we'll go into that a little bit. Sure. So about one in a thousand kids in, in the United States, for example, and it varies somewhat around the world, uh, have a form of chronic arthritis, uh, chronic being anything over six weeks, and arthritis being inflammation of a joint or joints. Um, so it's about one in a thousand. So it's not super common, but it, you know, it keeps us busy as, as rheumatologists. Um, it's nowhere near as common as in adults, for example, but it does occur. And actually the most common age is right around two, although it can happen at any age uh, during childhood. Uh, we see lupus, just like we see in adults, but less common than would be seen in adults. Those are kind of our two most common, but we see a whole variety of uh, other illnesses that are that are less common. Well, what, what is your research about, uh, you know, what problems are you looking to solve? I mean, do you think that there's cures for these kind of conditions or is it best you can uh, reduce the you know the problems associated with them or their deterioration if there is such a thing that happens with these problems yeah so my my research has changed kind of over the years um, and most recently I've spent most of my time in, in what we do in our laboratory for example studying this entity of macrophage activation syndrome which kind of falls under the the larger umbrella term of cytokine storm syndrome, which uh, may be what's going on with some of these sicker patients with COVID-19, for example. And cytokine storm syndrome or macrophage activation syndrome is a complication of a whole variety of diseases, including some of the ones that we treat in, in rheumatology, like lupus, for example. It can be a complication of that, but it can also be a complication of uh, things that oncologists or cancer doctors treat, like leukemia or lymphoma. And then there's a whole uh, array of infections that can trigger a cytokine storm independent of these diseases or in conjunction with these diseases. Um, and so it's, it's this unfortunately a fa often fatal um, disorder that complicates some of our diseases and some uh, certain infections tend to trigger it more than others. And so my lab has been studying some of the genetics behind that in, in particular, because uh, there's actually a familial form of this disease or a a disease that affects infants, if they're unfortunate enough to be one in 50,000 live births who have um, these homozygous or both copies of their chromosomes are mutated in the same gene in this pathway that we study. Um, and so we've been studying uh, in older kids and adults, these same mutations that occur actually on one copy and they get it later in life. Are these conditions again degenerative or, I mean, what do they do yeah, I don't want to say clinically. I mean, what happens to the person that has these conditions typically? Do they, you know, what do they experience? And as they age, does it significantly shorten their lifespan or they're just disabled their whole life or like what happens to them typically? So if it's just the arthritis, for example, um, it can shorten their lifespan. We do have a lot better medicines for the arthritis aspect alone. Um, a lot of these uh, drugs that you may have even seen advertised on TV, they're biologic agents, they're um, engineered drugs, drugs that block specific proteins like tumor necrosis factor or TNF, for example. And those have actually revolutionized the care in the last 20 years or so, both 
children and adults with chronic arthritis, they're fabulous drugs and they've just made everyone's lives better. And there are a whole different variety of these drugs, even when those, for example, TNF inhibitors don't work. In terms of the cytokine storm syndrome that I specifically study, like I said, that's a complication of some of our disorders as well as infections and some cancers and even some treatments. And uh, that is quickly and rapidly uh, uh, fatal if not treated. And it's something that, you know, the patients will almost always present to the hospital. They'll be that sick and they almost always have a fever over 95% of the time. And then they'll have uh, often multi-organ failure. And so they often uh, require intensive care, whether it's pediatric or adult. Um, so it's, it's a very kind of hyper-inflammatory immune response that's kind of going unchecked. Uh, and that if that's not checked, then uh, things don't go well. I thought that cytokine storms are associated more with acute sickness, not chronic. So is it, is it that, you know, if you have arthritis or another rheumatoid condition or rheumatic condition, um, you go through chronic phases and then acute phases and then the cytokine storms happen during a, an, an acute phase or like how do these people present and why? Yeah, I mean, it, for, for the rheumatic disease patients, it can occur really at any stage. For lupus, for example, it usually occurs at presentation. So the first time you actually diagnose someone with lupus. And lupus can be confusing because some of the laboratory features that we see in cytokine storms can be just part of the lupus. It's just that it's more severe. So if you're not looking out for it, you may not recognize the cytokine storm. But it can occur at any stage. Often it's triggered by something, and often that's a certain infection, many viral infections, particularly members of the herpes virus family. And so the most notorious probably uh, uh, virus in that family is Epstein-Barr virus or mono, the mononucleosis virus, for example. But other members of that family, like CMV or the cytomegalovirus, can do it. Um, so you can be in kind of any state. Um, but there are certain diseases, for example, adult still disease, which is kind of a cousin disease to what we call systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis or systemic JA. Those patients are kind of at chronic risk of developing cytokine storms. And when they flare their disease, a subset of them will develop a cytokine storm and others will not. So it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. But uh, in general, anybody uh, who has a potential risk factor for it can develop it at any time, but it's often triggered by something, typically an infection. So are you trying to st understand the genetic origins, like who is predisposed to the cytokine storms? Or, I mean, even if you're able to discover that, or if you have, then what? You know, how do yeah. you create an intervention? So I, I, that's exactly what my lab, for example, is trying to do, and other labs who have similar approaches, is trying to figure out um, if you have, for example, a mutation in, in, on one chromosome or one bad gene for the pathway we know affects the infants when they have both chromosomes mutated, for example, does that really predispose you? And it also helps us kind of learn about the pathophysiology or what's going on so that we can hopefully you know, understand it better and, and uh, hone in our treatments better. Um, but yeah, so I mean, at this point, uh, it's still at the research level even if we identify a mutation genetically, then we have to kind of take it back to the lab and prove that we think it's doing what it's doing. And then once we even know that, how valuable is that to the patient? Because most of these patients outside of some of the diseases I mentioned, like still disease, tend not to get this again. Um, they just got unfortunate for whatever bad infection they got. Um, 
So the ones that show up later in life, not the infants, but the ones that show up later in life, uh, it may just be a one-time event, but it can be deadly. So um, it may be way in the future, I don't know, that uh, you know people will know their genetics at birth. And so then it may be valuable to know what we, we're learning now to help say, okay, if you get a fever, you might want to you know, be on a special lookout for this, or these are the therapies that you might want to consider if you get it. Um, in addition to a genetic basis, uh, are people looking at the microbiome and seeing if that affects, you know, cytokine storms or predisposes you? I mean, are there other comorbidities or conditions that tend to predispose people? Yeah, like I said, there are certain diseases like leukemias and lymphomas where you're at higher risk than the general population for sure. And some of these autoimmune diseases and a group of diseases called auto-inflammatory diseases, more problems of your innate immune system, like your early immune system. Um, those tend to be rare diseases, fortunately, but those patients are also at high risk. In terms of the microbiome, I am not aware of anyone who's looked at that quite yet in terms of cytokine storm syndromes. They did, you know, they're relatively newly described, and so there's not a whole lot uh, that's known about it in terms of the microbiome. Is it clear even genetically? who will be predisposed to have these cytokine storms? Or is that still unclear? Is there just only a weak correlation so far? Or is it strong? It depends on who you talk to. Uh, if you talk to me, I think it's becoming clearer that there are genetic predispositions for this. Um, but, you know, I write grants and papers all the time and I get, you know, feedback uh, that, you know, some people believe it, some people don't. And so I think, you know, more data will help push one way or the other. Um, but yeah, it's not really hard and fast. And there are certain pathways we know to look for, but there are also others we probably just haven't recognized yet because we can't find a genetic predisposition in everyone that we uh, that we look for. Do we know in micro steps, you know, how cytokine storms happen? And you know, there are sets of conditions that tend to correlate with cytokine storm or not. Uh, you know, does someone start out with elevated levels of white blood cells to begin with, or low levels? I mean, what? What does it look like when it first starts? Do we know that? Yeah, so it's not a problem of having too strong of an immune system. It's really a problem of having subtle or not so subtle defects in your immune response. So there are multiple pathways to get to a cytokine storm. The one that's been best studied is the one that uh, occurs most frequently when infants get this. And it's a defect in the ability of some of your white blood cells, your natural killer cells and your cytotoxic CD8 T cells to kill infected cells in your body or target cells. And they have a, a subtle or not so subtle defect in that process. And because of that, not only do they not clear the infection that well, but they remain engaged with the cell that's infected, for example, longer than they normally would. And that prolonged engagement leads to um, an increased production of these cytokines, which are often inflammatory kind of hormones of the immune system. And they get to, normally you would, develop them in a normal infectious response, but they get much higher than you would want them to be, and it ultimately leads to multi-organ failure. Is it, um, is it a defect in the immune system, or what if it's uh, in the signaling from the cells themselves that are in trouble? What if there, for some reason, there's this signal that just keeps going and going and going, and that tells the immune system to keep responding and responding, and maybe it, maybe it lies with the cells affected. It's possible, and like I said, there are multiple pathways to get there. The one we've studied the best is, is this defect in the um, natural killer cells or the cytotoxic CD8 T cells. The auto-inflammatory disorders 
where it is more of a problem of the innate immune system. Yeah, you can have defects in something called the inflammasome, which is a problem in these antigen-presenting cells. So yes, it can come from multiple different pathways. Has it been characterized yet? Um, I don't know which pathways seem to have more sway over when these storms happen and how intense they happen. Have we figured that out at least? You know, if there's multiple pathways, which one looks the juiciest to study? You know, first off. Yeah, I mean, genetically, we just you know we we do what we do. We we get whole genome sequencing or whole exome sequencing, and then we find what genes we identify, and then we can kind of work backwards to figure out which cell type, for example, is likely the offending agent. But clinically, the good news is, is that we have a variety of, of therapies that we've been using now to treat this, and they often work for either of the pathways. Some work better than others, but, and, and so we are somewhat guided by that process, but uh, for the most part, even broad therapies like corticosteroids uh, will work. So where do you see the advancement in uh, your work in, in terms of understanding? What are you working yeah. on right now specifically that you think is going to be uh, insightful? You know, I think doing what we're doing already, which is is starting to screen larger patient populations for these um, genes that we know to look for, for example, and see if we are seeing more single copy or one chromosome copy defects in these patients compared to the general population, and then going back to the lab and showing that they work. But more importantly, we're also looking for new genes that haven't been described in this disorder. And so we have two or three that we actually think are promising. Uh, some are slightly farther along in the lab than others. And so the, the more we can identify, the more you know, likely down the road we'll be able to see who's at risk. And like I said, we'll also hopefully be able to learn more about the pathophysiology of this disease and why some patients are at higher risk than others. And then, you know, what are the pathways that we want to target in terms of treatment? It, what's your sense? Is that uh, there's a ton more to figure out or that uh, within the next few years, we're, we're very close to making a breakthrough? Yeah, I, I would say more the former than the latter. Um, I think we, the good news is, like I said, even if we don't completely understand this, we have a lot of decent therapies now compared to what we used to have. Kind of our bigger problem really is actually getting people to recognize it. So if you don't recognize it, you're not going to treat it. And like I said, it's frequently fatal. So that I think is one of our, our biggest challenges right now. And, and it's one of the kind of silver linings from this COVID-19 pandemic is that cytokine storm syndrome is getting some you know, recognition as, as an entity, not just for COVID-19, but hopefully beyond that, because there are patients around the world in pediatric and adult intensive care units who uh, succumb to cytokine storms every single day from a whole variety of causes, uh, let alone COVID-19. So I think part of, you know, it's a relatively new disease in terms of its description. There was one paper early in the 50s, a couple more papers in the 50s, only one paper in all of 1960 uh, decade um, based on PubMed citations, at least. And now we have over 8,000 of them. So really in the last two decades, the research and the description even of this has kind of blossomed as well as kind of like the genetic aspects of this. So, you know, I think we're still at the stages of just getting people to recognize this and know what it is and to be on the lookout for it. And then, you know, once you recognize it, then, you know, come at it from a treatment perspective. Pathophysiologically, I think, you know, we may be able to identify the, the genetic causes in up to a third of patients, but that leaves a whole lot more that we, you know, just don't know what's going on. Well, I remember um, it was actually only until, I don't know how recently, maybe the past 20 years, maybe less, that even heart attacks needed their own 
you know, understandable checklist to determine if someone was likely having one or not. So it sounds like a big part of this, at least initially or clinically, is that hospitals and medical staff need to be trained to recognize when this may be happening so they can do something about it. Yeah, I think, you know, that's kind of, you know, I feel like if nothing, I, I'm a cheerleader for this disease and, and giving talks like this is helpful, I think, not only for the lay public, but really just for other conditions, particularly if you were trained a while ago, uh, you may not have even heard about this. So um, I think it's important to get it out there. And, and, and the thing is, like in medicine, we have this dictum Occam's razor, where we take a set of symptoms and historical findings uh, and lab findings, and we put them all together to come up with one kind of underlying diagnosis as opposed to like, oh, we got these three or four different conditions all causing this, that's much less likely. But with this, with cytokine storms, you can have an underlying disease and then get a cytokine storm on top of it. So it's kind of the opposite. And so not only is it important to treat whatever problem is going on, whether it's your lupus or an infection that's triggering the cytokine storm, but on top of that, you also have to treat the cytokine storm. And if you don't recognize that, you won't treat it. What are some of the best ways to discover to treat it? I mean, you know, do you reduce the fever or do you leave the fever or do you keep it below 104 but maintain fever somehow? That's the best. I mean, what's, what's the best advice so far? Yeah, I mean, we're not really targeting the fever specifically, but the fever goes away with the therapies that we have for the most part. Um, so, you know, early on, physicians learned who were studying this uh, back in the 70s and 80s, for example, that uh, corticosteroids or glucocorticoids, which are kind of very broad, powerful immune suppressants that attack most aspects of your cellular immunity, could, could help you. Now, they have a lot of associated side effects, but in the short term, if you're weighing that against death from the cytokine storm, then treating the cytokine storm wins out. Um, but now that we have more targeted approaches where we can go after individual cytokines that are often central to many of these processes, for example, interleukin-1, then that tends to be an approach. And sometimes they're used in conjunction with corticosteroids and other therapies to treat the cytokine storm. But they, they're safer in the sense that they don't have such a broad immunosuppressive effect. And when they work, they often work really well and quickly. So um, yeah, we have... Uh, Kind of a whole armamentarium of medicines. We don't know specifically which ones always work the best, um, but uh, we're getting a, a better handle on that. Okay. What does the future look like the next five years? And then maybe you know further out than there, who knows? But is there anything, again, coming in the next four or five years, three, four or five years that you think is super promising? People have been trying to develop um, even just diagnostic or classification criteria for this group of disorders for a while now. And there are some out there that are very specific for individual diseases, and that's helpful, particularly if you're going to do clinical trial work, for example, they want to have a relatively homogeneous population. Um, and there are some more broad criteria, and sometimes they're too restrictive so that you miss the diagnosis. Um, and so I think hopefully those will continue to improve, because once again, if you're not diagnosing it, you're definitely not treating it. And then, you know, clinical trials, you know, we're with COVID now, we have a ton of clinical trials to treat at least this one particular cytokine storm associated with this virus. But you know, we need clinical trials for other cytokine storm syndromes. And we started one up uh, three or four years ago here at, at UAB um, using a, an IL-1 blocking agent. So you know, 
like everything in medicine, to prove that your therapy works or doesn't work, you need a randomized controlled trial. And so that, that will definitely be part of the future. I, I have no doubt about that. And then ongoing genetics, I think, will also be important to kind of uh, see who's at risk and to better understand the pathophysiology. Actually, well, I forgot to ask you something important. What kind of outcomes occur with cytokine storms? Are there, I don't know, the word is not flavors, but are there certain types of cytokine storms that are very different from others? Or is it kind of a mixed bag of what happens? You know, are certain organs targeted in one and not in another? Or does one progress faster? Does one look different you know, from a biomarker level? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and prior to COVID-19, in general, I would say no. They, they, they tend to um, ultimately lead to multi-organ failure. And there are subtle differences between, for example, what people will call cytokine release syndrome, which comes from actually therapy for treating refractory leukemias, for example, with CAR T-cell therapy. They get a, a cytokine storm that seems to respond to IL-6 blockade and probably to IL-1 blockade as well. But ultimately, like I said, these patients are almost always have fever, and then they, the liver often becomes involved. They, about a third to a half of patients will have central nervous system involvement, everything from frank coma to seizures to strokes uh, and everywhere in between. Ultimately, the lungs uh, and the kidney tend to be late findings when all the organs start shutting down. With COVID, it's kind of the flip where the lung is the site and maybe the heart as well that gets sick early on. And maybe that's just because that's where the virus directly targets based on the receptors for the virus. But ultimately, even those patients can uh, go on to end organ failure, but it's less of a, a systemic process, particularly early on in the disease for COVID-19 compared to most of the other cytokine storms we've been dealing with over the years. Yeah, that's weird now that I think about it. You know, you would think the affected organ would be the start of the cytokine storm, and then why would other organs even be affected? But I guess, you know, they all interplay. Um, and why wouldn't a particular spot that's troubled be the first place for the problem, and then it spreads to other spots. But you're saying that in general, it seems to be systemic when it's observed? Yeah, most of the time, it is more of a systemic response, and it's from this production of uh, inflammatory cytokines that may be coming from the spleen and or the liver, wherever the lymphocyte populations are hanging out. But in COVID, it really seems to stem from the lungs and or the heart, but then can spread beyond that. And they also get these clotting abnormalities in COVID-19 uh, whether it's in your brain or in your lungs or even in your deep veins, that we see some in other uh, cytokine storms, although we tend to see more bleeding than clotting a lot of times. So there's some unique features to this cytokine storm with COVID-19. Well, very good. Randy, what's the best way for people to find out more? Where can they look? Yeah, I mean, PubMed is, is, uh, is a pretty good source, and some of the journals are very open access. And so if you have any kind of medical thinking about it, you know, from that perspective, that's a great way to start. If you're non-medical, kind of talks like this, you know, and, I, and I've done several of these already with this COVID-19 outbreak can be helpful. My colleague, Ed Behrens at the University of Pennsylvania and I, along with uh, a phenomenal group of contributors, put out really the first um, textbook devoted specifically to cytokine storm syndrome last fall. It's called cytokine storm syndrome. Uh, it's not cheap, and I, unfortunately, neither Ed nor I uh, get a dime from the, the sales. But um, but it is a really we're pretty happy with it. It's a really good book. I mean, it's going to be out of date like any textbook once you publish it. But uh, you know, we'll we'll hopefully get 
newer editions, um, but I think it's a great place to start. It talks about everything from the history and descriptions early on of this disease, way back when in the 50s and 60s and 70s, to uh, how to diagnose it, what are the clinical features, what are the pathologic features, what are the different organisms that trigger it, what are the different diseases that are associated, what are the genetics, what are the animal models, and most importantly, I think in some aspects, what are the various treatments that are out there. So it's pretty comprehensive. Well, very good. Well, Randy, thanks for coming, and I appreciate it, and uh, you know, obviously the work you're doing to help everyone. So thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.